Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, as usual. In moments, we'll talk about the demonization of China in U.S. political discourse with Tobita Chow. And then we'll hear from the historian Donna Murch about how the Black Panther Party originated in campus study groups in the early 1960s, a reminder that campus politics are real politics. Before that, a few words in the dismal economic news. For the second week in a row, new applications for unemployment insurance rose. The total since the crisis began is over 54 million. That doesn't mean there are now 54 million unemployed because some have been recalled to work, but there's a lot of misery in the job market. And according to the Census Bureau's new Household Pulse Survey, as of last week, there's been a decline of 32 million in the number of people getting enough of the food they wanted compared to pre-pandemic levels, a rise of 24 million getting enough food but not always what they wanted, a rise of almost 7 million in those not always getting enough, and a rise of 1 million in those often not getting enough. And that was before the $600 supplemental unemployment benefits evaporated. For more, check out my blog, lbo-news.com, lbo-news.com. There's quite a bit of new material on the crisis there. Discourse around China has gotten seriously poisonous. We have Trump's naked racism and xenophobia. You can hear it in the way he pronounces the country's name. But the Dems are also beating Cold War drums. Why? Here to explore the roots of this rampant xenophobia is the Chicago-based Tobita Chow, director of Justice is Global, whose aim is to counter toxic nationalism with a progressive internationalism. Tobita Chow. China uh, is on everyone's minds these days, but the general atmosphere around China in this country seems paranoid, xenophobic, racist, just generally frightening, actually. Um, How does it strike you? It is, in a word, terrifying, abysmal. It seems that we are sliding into greater and greater conflict between the two countries. My read, and this is a a common take on uh, the actions that the Trump administration has taken, is that they are making a concerted effort to poison the relationship to the point where it will be beyond the ability of a potential Biden administration to repair the damage and that we will be locked in a Cold War style conflict with China for the foreseeable future, even if Biden were to win. It seems that we are at great risk of falling into a feedback loop where Increasing nationalism and aggression on one side leads to nationalism on the other, which feeds into nationalism on the other, and, and, and so on and so forth. All of this is creating a more divided and dangerous world for everybody. Trump's attitude towards China seems just to emerge from a really visceral racist hatred. Um, you can hear it even the way he pronounces the word China. Oh, Yes. Uh, it's disgusting. You know, there's that clip on YouTube of, of stringing together all of his pronunciations of the word in uh, 2016, you know, and he's continued in that mode. But what do you think is motivating the larger uh, hostility in uh, the American political class against China? Is it rivalry? Is Trump's racism? Is he just more overt about it? And that's what's underlying a lot of the uh, the attitudes of the broader, more discreet political class. How do you, how do you see the, the roots of this? Yeah, I think the roots run deep. There's two major strains of anti-China sentiment uh, among the elites more broadly. This sort of xenophobic anti-China politics has grown more and more powerful in recent years, and it underlies everything that we're seeing from the Trump administration. Part of the anti-China politics is sort of a cynical election ploy, thinking that beating up on China and tying Democrats to China is their best shot of avoiding um, just a a catastrophic defeat in November. Um, It's their best shot at defending themselves from the very obvious accusations that they have completely ruined the country and failed to deal with this pandemic. There's that uh, cynical electoral side to it, but there is also a much deeper trend within the elite towards wanting greater uh, confrontation against China. There's two main strains of this. These two strains are are very closely related to one another. 
One is uh, military. The military hawks in the national security establishment see China as a rising power that is on the verge of asserting itself as a regional military power. So uh, one flashpoint for this is the South China Sea, where the Chinese military has been building up for a number of years. This is a threat to U.S. global military hegemony. If you have a commitment to the idea that the U.S. military or the military of other countries allied with the U.S. is going to control every square mile of the planet, then it is a threat that the Chinese military is establishing its own region of control within, say, the South China Sea. So that, that's sort of the more realistic version of the fears of the military hawks. It, it also, though, um, mutates into uh, this paranoid, almost apocalyptic version, which uh, Secretary of, of the State Pompeo expressed in this big speech last week when he said, uh, if we bend the knee now, our children's children may be at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so the fear there is not that China will threaten U.S. global military hegemony, but that China will conquer the U.S. and subjugate Americans and steal our freedoms and so on. It is disturbingly easy how some of these figures sort of slip from the realistic fear that China threatens this commitment to total military hegemony, which is a bad commitment. But if you have it, then, yeah, China is a threat to you. People can sort of slip very easily from that to this fear that actually China's not just kicking us out of its own backyard. It's coming for us. It's coming for Americans and it's going to brainwash our children, whatever. So that's one strain. It's, it's the milit militarists who, for that reason, have been urging for greater confrontation with China. The other side of things is uh, the economic nationalists who see the U.S. and China as locked into zero-sum competition in the global economy. They believe that in order for the U.S. economy to flourish, the Chinese economy has to be brought to heel, if not destroyed. Now, this would be the Peter Navarro position, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely Navarro. There are also some champions uh, in the Senate. Uh, so this is a big thing for Senator Rubio. It's one of the themes for Josh Hawley. One of the themes there is uh, deindustrialization and and the belief that competition from China is responsible for uh, the loss of, you know, these good blue collar jobs. A more politically influential version of these economic worries among the elites is the fear that uh, China is now competing with the U.S. for control over the most advanced parts of the tech industry. This is a big concern, both because those sectors are the most profitable, and there's a fear that China is horning in on those. There's also, and this sort of ties back with the militarist side, the idea that the tech industry is, in effect, a wing of military power, and that superiority in the tech industry is necessary in order to maintain military superiority. So that we have the militarists and the economic nationalists who are both embracing a, a notion of zero-sum competition between the U.S. and China for these two related reasons. They've been pushing for years now for greater confrontation with China. They have seized the rising anti-China sentiment uh, under this pandemic as their opportunity to build greater power for their agenda. Uh, some of this uh, concern about the South China Sea and, and all goes back at least to the Obama administration. Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, made a big deal about the pivot towards Asia, by which she meant assembling alliances that could contain China. So we can go after the more overt racism of the Trump crowd, but you know the Democrats are not innocent here. Yeah, that's right. This is really a bipartisan movement among elites. The Republicans are obviously more extreme, uh, more uh, openly racist, more paranoid and given to conspiracy theory. So the, the Democratic Party version is in many ways more reasonable and more moderate, but it is absolutely a bipartisan trend. To be fair, China is a rising power. The U.S. is a fading power. And that's true in almost every dimension, not just military but also political and economic. And it's right for American elites to perceive that our day in the sun is, is over and uh, we're a fading power and they're a rising power. But it just seems like we can't react in any kind of mature way to that, uh, what seems like an inevitable development at this point. We, uh, we go crazy and, uh, and lash out. Yeah, like you say, uh, China is a rising power. 
the U.S., all evidence suggests that uh, the USA's day in the sun is coming to a close. It is realistic to think that uh, China is challenging U.S. global hegemony on both a military and economic dimension. The big question is, from the perspective of the average working class person in the U.S., so what? (laughs) What do the vast majority of people in the U.S. get from the fact that the U.S. up until relatively recently has been able to use the Navy to dominate the whole world up to the shores of China or... Um, Bragging rights in a collapsing society. I guess that's yeah. what the average yeah, yeah, person yeah, would yeah. get. Yeah. What do you see as the Chinese response to uh, this increasing bellicosity coming from out of the U.S.? It has been mixed. Uh, there has absolutely been a rise in anti-U.S. nationalism in China. It is very much a mirror image of anti-Chinese nationalism in the U.S., uh, and they deploy it for similar purposes. So just like uh, Trump deployed anti-Chinese nationalism in order to deflect blame from him for the pandemic, uh, elites in China have done uh, a similar thing where they use uh, anti-U.S. nationalism in order to deflect blame from the Chinese people for um, the Chinese government's mishandling uh, of the uh, pandemic. And there was a tremendous amount of popular anger in China early on around what they saw as uh, missteps from the authorities, both locally in Wuhan and and also nationally. And the Chinese government successfully deployed some different tools, including anti-US nationalism, in order to um, diffuse and redirect that anger. And those tools went up to like conspiracy theories. They use conspiracy conspiracy theories, just like uh, some of uh, our folks do here, Um, one of them being that uh, the coronavirus was actually introduced into China by the U.S. military. So it's actually the U.S. military's fault. That was a thing on on Chinese media for a while. The Bethesda virus, right? Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. So uh, there's definitely a rise in anti-U.S. nationalism uh, in China. There's also very clearly, uh, they feel a need to respond to every action that the Trump administration takes against them, like they are engaging in sort of this this tit for tat thing, which then provokes a response from the U.S., which you know can resp- you know it's it's the, we we have this like self reinforcing cycle right now, at moments where we could see that the Chinese government has been trying to moderate their response and avoid escalating things too far on their side. So, for example, um, last week when uh, the U.S. government ordered the closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston. So at first, China took its time in issuing a response. It didn't immediately order the closure of a U.S. consulate in China. When they did order a a closure of a U.S. consulate, they picked uh, Chengdu, which it is retaliation. Uh, It could have been worse. They could have picked Hong Kong, which would have been like much more aggressive. It seemed like they were delaying and and hoping that maybe this thing would blow over. But overall, what we see is a is a pattern where both the U.S. and China are primed to interpret everything the other side does as aggressive and feel the need to respond. In turn, this has a huge risk of spiraling out of control. I'm speaking with Tobita Chow, director of Justice is Global. What do you see coming out of the? Democratic Party, um, what would a likely Biden administration, which seems more likely than not at this point, but who knows, uh, what would a Biden administration look like in contrast to Trump? A Biden administration would have less bellicose rhetoric. We would not see this apocalyptic rhetoric of the Chinese are coming for us that we saw, like, for example, from Pompeo that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think the approach would be much more moderate. What we saw from the draft platform that the Democratic Party last week, and I know they they voted on the platform starting yesterday, so I don't know what has happened to this piece in in that process. But in the draft platform, there was some stuff that uh, was heartening to see. Uh, There was the rejection of Trump's tariff wars. There's the rejection of uh, a, quote, trap of a new Cold War. It's great to see them call it a trap. And the embrace of international cooperation with China around uh, issues of mutual concern, 
So that's all uh, positive. They avoided blaming China for the pandemic, which seems a low bar, but still great to see. Um, <laughs> These days you can't count on anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At one level, it's like, okay, they, they have the right goals. They want to avoid a trap of a, a new Cold War. That's great. But I think like realistically, based on what we can see coming out of the Biden administration, based on what's in the Democratic Party platform, they're pursuing a strategy that is going to be unable to overcome the spiraling tensions that Trump has uh, pushed us into with China. Like I mentioned earlier, it seems like the Trump administration is doing their best to create an adversarial relationship between the U.S. and China that has become so toxic that uh, even if Biden wins in November, uh, the Biden administration will be unable to pull the country out of this conflict with China. And I think there is reason to think these anti-China extremists in the Trump administration are going to get what they want. Because what we see in the Democratic Party platform is uh, a con continued commitment to retain control of the South China Sea. That sounds like a commitment to continue to uh, assert the U.S., have the U.S. Navy assert uh, influence in that region and risk confrontation with the Chinese military. You know, when you hear something like that, you're saying it'd be like the Chinese complaining about U.S. strong arming in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes. Why yeah, do exactly. we think that uh, the, the South China Sea is our concern? It's just bizarre. But, you know, this is the assumptions of, of all these decades of American imperialism that we just think it's everything yeah. in the world is ours. Yeah. It makes sense to interpret that as aggression against the U.S. only if you start with the base assumption that the U.S. rightfully has control over every square mile of ocean or something like that. If you start out with that base commitment, which is a very common bipartisan commitment, then yes, China's actions in the South China Sea seem very aggressive. But if you don't start out with that commitment, then it, <laughs> it, it, it's very confusing why this is a strategic priority for, for the U.S. government. Now, you know, it is an issue for a lot of the countries in that area. There's a question of what would we want a, a progressive U.S. government to do in these territorial disputes between China and the Philippines and, and, and so on. But that's a very different conversation from interpreting uh, China's buildup in the South China Sea as aggression against the U.S. I'm sure there are some people listening who will say, yeah, 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 but China really is a brutal, authoritarian, repressive state, and these guys are being too soft on it. What do you say to that kind of critique? China is a brutal, um, authoritarian state. I have friends in China who are left activists, you know, for example, labor activists, who are threatened all the time uh, by the authoritarian Chinese government. So yes, it's a brutal, authoritarian state. There is this weird illusion, though, that a worsening U.S.-China relationship and uh, a Cold War or, God forbid, a hot war will somehow improve the status of people who are currently oppressed by the Chinese government that uh, marginalized and uh, populations within China or activists in China facing repression are going to see uh, a greater chance of liberation if the U.S. and China are falling deeper and deeper into animosity, that just strikes me as, as crazy. Um, the U.S.-China tensions, above all, feed into this toxic Chinese nationalism, which can take very paranoid forms. Uh, one of the core narratives of Chinese nationalism is that anything that the Chinese state doesn't like, whether that's uh, Hong Kong protesters or labor activists within mainland China or feminist activists, or uh, ethnic and religious uh, minorities, like uh, the Uyghurs, that these, these are um, instruments of foreign powers using uh, these social forces to undermine the nation from within. So they're interpreted as foreign threats to the country. It's a nationalistic narrative used to delegitimize activists and protesters and uh, delegitimize the needs and, and rights of ethnic and religious minorities. Um, the worst that the U.S.-China relationship gets, the more powerful that narrative gets, the greater the power of the Chinese state to use those narratives to legitimize every form of repression that it takes against these folks. I find it totally baffling the idea that um, greater aggression against China from the U.S. is going to improve the lives of any of, of these people. I just think that's, that's just a, a 
an insane illusion and um, it's coming from people who don't actually care about any of those people. Uh, and finally, um, do you or, or other um, people who, of Chinese origin or Chinese appearing origin, are you experiencing hostility on the streets? I mean, this has reached the level of that kind of aggression and hostility. I have. Uh, I've experienced some stuff in uh, Chicago. This was earlier on in the pandemic. I just haven't been out as much um, more recently. So there are fewer chances for me to get exposed to uh, this stuff in uh, the last few months. But there's definitely continuing reports of racist harassment, um, some acts of violence. But in a way, I'm, I'm even more concerned about what is happening within government institutions so within intel intelligence agencies, within the FBI, within the NSA, there is the institutionalization of racist policies. And this, again, goes back before the Trump administration. This, this, this also started under Obama at the FBI. But there are uh, like programs, like special programs at the FBI, for example, that are all about targeting uh, Chinese people and I think the FBI director recently said uh, they open a new espionage case connected to China every 10 hours, which the right interprets as evidence for how dire the threat of China is. What I think it's really evidence of is that there is within the FBI an enormous amount of resources that has been devoted to investigating probably a lot of cases without any real evidence people from China of um, trying to undermine the US. And right now it is chiefly around economic espionage, supposed thefts of, of research and intellectual property. But as we've seen from how uh, DHS and ICE and CBP have morphed into um, this Gestapo-like agency um, in cities throughout uh, the country, when you build up within government institutions uh, these racist programs, uh, there is a huge risk of them morphing into uh, something with um, a much broader scope of, of work. And I, and I find this very, very threatening that we are seeing the buildup and in, in, in investment in these kinds of programs within government agencies. And yeah, I'm just worried about what that is going to turn into as uh, the US-China relationship probably uh, continues to, to worsen and the anti-China nationalism within the U.S. gets just more and more paranoid. And that is on top of other threats that we have seen to uh, people of Chinese uh, descent. There have been uh, restrictions on visas for Chinese nationals. There have been the attacks on international students, which also I think have to be connected because uh, Chinese international students make up the largest population of international students. Um, so, you know, these Bank blanket bans on international students are a good way to take a lot of uh, Chinese people out of the country. There is also uh, the, this proposal floated by the, the White House to ban members of the Chinese Communist Party, along with their family members, potentially um, from entering the U.S. and like canceling their visas or whatever. Uh, hugely problematic and, and racist. Um, the va th this would impact potentially 270 million Chinese people, 270 million Chinese people. The vast majority of them have little to no control over the policies of the Chinese government. You know, it would be like having a travel ban on all members of the Republican Party because you don't like the Trump administration. Um, like, okay, members of the Republican Party may be not great people, but they aren't writing government policy, right? If such a policy went into effect, there's no way for uh, U.S. immigration officials to be able to tell who's a member of the Chinese Communist Party or not, let alone who's related to a member of the Chinese Communist Party. So how would that be implemented? You would end up with immigration officers empowered to ask anyone who they might suspect of being a member of the Chinese Communist Party and asking them, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? <laughs> Well, we have a history with that. Yes. yes, yes. It would be a combination of a new McCarthyism with um, just a new racist yellow peril politics. Yeah, so just seeing what's, what is already being built within these different government institutions and the policies that the Trump White House are uh, like seriously entertaining 
it, it points to a future of escalating racism, not just at the popular level, but from these very powerful parts of the government. And I find that very threatening. That was Tobita Chow, director of Justice is Global, a project at People's Action. After we recorded the interview, he messaged me to say that he wished he'd mentioned how afraid many Chinese are that the U.S. wants to start a war with them. Let's not do that, okay? You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Rebecca rode up on the afternoon train. It was sunny. Her salt box house on the coast took a mind off St. Louis. Bill was the heir to the Standard Oil name. And money and the town said how to Divorce, they do it. The wedding was charming, if a little gauche. There's only so far new money goes. They picked out a home and called it Holiday House. Their parties were tasteful, if a little loud. The doctor had told him to settle down. It must have been her fault, his heart gave. That was, yes, Taylor Swift, doing a sharp bit of class analysis, The Last Great American Dynasty, from her excellent new album, Folklore. I fear my aging music hipster license is now going to be revoked. And now the importance of higher education to political activism, specifically the emergence of the Black Panther Party, founded in 1966, out of campus study groups earlier in the decade. Donna Murch's book, Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, traces that history, a history that was largely unknown until she discovered it. It's not a new book. The University of North Carolina Press published it in 2010, but I thought the story is worth telling now that the universities are under intensified budgetary attack because of the corona crisis. These attacks are led by the right, but every now and then you see a know-nothing leftist complaining that campus politics aren't real politics. In fact, they are. Donna Murch is an associate professor of history at Rutgers and is on the executive council of the university's union, AAUP slash AFT, and is deeply involved in the fight to defend the university against budget cuts and layoffs. Donna Murch. When I was reading your book, I was reminded of uh, a comment from Roger Freeman, who was an advisor on education to Nixon and then Reagan, uh, who said in 1970, we are in danger of producing an educated proletariat that's dynamite. We have to be selective on who we allow to go through higher education. Months later, I believe it was, uh, Reagan uh, imposed tuition at, uh, in the University of California system, and a few years later, New York City put tuition on CUNY. Now, I think that a lot of people on the left dismiss the importance uh, of campus politics to real politics, but your book reminds me it was, it's really important. Like the whole black power movement of the 60s in the Bay Area, the campuses were, were formed, right? Absolutely. Essentially, in the 1960s, where you have this enormous increase in the student population, and it's a global phenomenon. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in Europe. It's even happening in China. So there's a whole prehistory to the 1960s, 1970s mobilizations, and this has a lot to do with a whole generation of people having unprecedented access to higher education. And right-wing forces were very aware of this. I always saw myself as having a kind of imaginary dialogue with Samuel Huntington's political order and changing societies, because Huntington himself wrote about this and understood that it was happening at the time. Part of my task when I wrote Living for the City was to explain why Oakland. Coming from the East Coast, <laughs> like a lot of East Coast people, I didn't fully understand why a kind of radical movement that became so influential in the 1960s, why it came from a relatively small city with a very recent Black population. It just wasn't obvious to me. And so as a graduate student at Berkeley, researching the roots of the Black Panther Party, I found that largely this could be traced to a history that was not in traditional archives. It wasn't found in the Panther Archive at Stanford University, that much of the infrastructure for the party came from an early Black studies movement in the early 60s. It's a little known fact that the Panthers started with a study group. That was the Afro-American Association. And it was founded by Donald Warden, who was a student at Bolt Hall. And he wrote a letter to the Daily Cal in the early 60s, angry about the murder of Patrice Lumumba and arguing that rather than focusing on desegregation and integration, 
we should be focused on Malcolm X, Patrice Lumumba, and the struggle of black people in the larger world. This was right around 1961 or so? Yeah, 1961-1962. Um, he's an interesting character. He was uh, quite a, um, a speaking performer, right? He was. He's, he's very interesting. I mean, he has a history. He has an autobiography that he wrote, which clearly draws on the tropes of the autobiography of Malcolm X. He's originally from Pittsburgh. He claims that his parents were Garveyites. It's a story told very much through that genre of the autobiography of Malcolm X about his own radicalization, but he changes his name after founding the Afro-American Association and then becomes very influenced by Saudi Arabia and Wahhabi Islam later in the late 1960s. But he's a borning moment where, and this is the piece that intersects directly with what I was talking about, democratization of higher education. So in the early 60s, you have probably more African students at the University of California, Berkeley, than you have black students from the United States. And there's this whole cross-fertilization of a generation of young people who are coming to get especially degrees in economics and political science to take back these skills to their own newly independent republics. So Donald Warden writes this, and he has lots of friends that are African students. And this is also the period where in California, there'd never been formal Jim Crow segregation. But in the early 60s, the numbers of black students start rising, and then it vastly accelerates after 1964. So it intersects with a time where one, California has incredibly well-funded public higher education. Everyone with a high school equivalency or a high school degree had a right to have a higher education degree. And then you have the passage of the California Master Plan, which essentially provided enormous resources to the University of California. It had a three-tiered tripartite structure. And the idea was, how do you balance the boom of California? So it's in 1962 that California becomes the most populous state. So you have this hugely booming economy with lots of in-migration, with this public higher education system. So how do you incorporate all these people who want access to higher education? So money was channeled into the UC system, and it became the multiversity of Clark Kerr, the place that would get the most federal research dollars, but would also have a kind of life-changing experience for the student and this amazing transformational educational experience. The second tier were the California state schools. And those were meant to be professional schools where people would go get pharmacy degrees, nurses degrees, essentially MA granting. And at the very bottom is a set of schools that we rarely talk about, but I found was actually most essential to the black power movement. Those were the community colleges. So it set up a structure for local financing and expansion of the community colleges combined with state funding. And lo and behold, it was in that community college structure at Merritt College in the Bay Area, but also Los Angeles Community College in Southern California, that you saw a lot of that infrastructure in the early 60s of black students coming together, meeting each other, forming study groups. And it is out of those study groups that I call the campus that three or four years later, you see people go into the street. Now, the Afro-American Association was kind of a, um, an incubator for a lot of talent that later emerged, right? Describe the membership, what it was like, what the ideology was like, what they did. The Afro-American Association is fascinating. Until I wrote my book, a lot of what we knew about the Afro-American Association, we only heard through Panther autobiographies as antagonists. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale first become politicized by the Afro-American Association, but they later repudiate it. From the point of view of those autobiographies, it always seems as if Donald Warden and the Afro-American Association was awful. But of course, in the early 60s, they were members. It's a study group founded by Bolt Hall law students by Donald Warden. And um, there's another uh, man who becomes senior dean. Oh, also the very important scholar Cedric Robinson is a member as an undergraduate. And it was mainly men, but there were women who were in the Afro-American Association these are people that I would describe as the class that was really positioned to rise once you had the expanded opportunity of the civil rights revolution. So people came from all over the country. They weren't just from the Bay Area. And they tended to come from kind of very solid working class families who owned their own homes. They were certainly more affluent than the people in the community colleges. So the Afro-American Association, they had shared readings. One of the major readings was E. Franklin Frazier's Black Bourgeoisie. Some people argue that's where the term bougie came from. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Is that what they were aspiring to? Like, Well, what I would say is that they were very critical 
of the black bourgeoisie. They saw themselves as a kind of class of people that identified with Africa and with African decolonization. So there's a lot of anger at the black middle class, even though some of them were the black middle class. That ideology and that criticism of the kind of white identified, culturally vapid black middle class was used to craft this new identity. So they wanted to repudiate the term Negro. The Afro-American Association starts using the term black. And I think this is important because it's a political history that people usually attribute to Johnson publications or simply to the press. But one of the purposes of the Afro-American Association was really to change the meaning of blackness and to link it to Africa. This thing that we now take for granted, calling ourselves African-American or Afro-American, it's in this early 60s period that it's forged in the Bay Area. So they essentially are on this white campus. And part of the reason I think the Afro-American Association forms is that it's this experience of people who come from largely black communities from all over the country who are suddenly thrust into this nearly all white environment at UC Berkeley. It's almost the exposure to white institutions led to this kind of nationalism. And they really wanted to create ties with a larger black community. So it's formed on the UC Berkeley campus. But one of the things that they start to do by 1963, a year or two after their founding, is they begin to recruit on the Bay Area campuses all over. So the primary place they recruit is Merritt College because it's in West Oakland. It's about 15 minutes south of the UC Berkeley campus, but also in San Francisco State at Laney and downtown Oakland. And what they were trying to do was build a much larger base and membership. Once they reach Merritt College, they begin organizing and recruiting among a much poorer and more working class Southern migrant community. Merritt is very important to this. What's the story of Merritt? Yeah, Merritt is an amazing place. Merritt was this small community college that had been called Oakland City College. It was called the Queen of the Humanities, partially because of there's so many graduate students. You know, graduate students were important in the free speech movement. This was true also in the 90s when I was a graduate student. They were doing most of the teaching of the University of California, Berkeley. So in some ways, Merritt benefited from all of that labor. There were a lot of UCB graduate students who were either part-time instructors who had become full-time professors. Yeah, it was the humanities school. And it's the place where Huey Newton and Bobby Seale first meet in 1961. It's the place that they begin agitating for black studies. And then it becomes really the home base for the Black Panther Party when it's founded in 1966. And the thing I'd say that's important about the story is that it's a counter story to how we often think about higher education. It's not just a story of using higher education for social mobility. It's a story about working class kids from the South whose parents have only had five or six years of education. In the segregated South, only a third of black communities even had high schools. So even attending high school is a very big deal. So for these Southern migrants, the idea that their children had the right to go to college to get an associate degree, bachelor's degree, or in the case of Huey Newton, ultimately in 1980, a PhD degree is huge. So you have all of these populations very rapidly suddenly getting all this access to education. And it's that access to education that creates new structures like these study groups and new ideas. So you have the Afro-American Association. Very importantly, you also have Revolutionary Action Movement, which was a black Marxist group that was in tension um, with Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. Bob Fitch, uh, my late friend, said when he got to Berkeley, I guess around 1963, there were an awful lot of like Marxist reading groups there. And that was what laid the groundwork for what later emerged, the free speech movement and the whole student radicalization of, of the later 60s. People were just doing serious work reading and talking, which you know a lot of people dismiss as not really political activity, but it certainly proved to the contrary. I mean, it really is very important to lay the intellectual groundwork for um, political action. I think it's absolutely essential. And this is not a story that I knew. It's a story that I found that initially in researching it, I was surprised that given the way the Black Panther Party had always been represented, always emphasis on guns and police patrols and the march on Sacramento and the role of the military, that I was initially very confused when I kept finding that all of these ties the origin story extended back into higher education because up until that point the way the story had been told it was the antithesis of that it's striking that so many of the panthers wrote autobiographies we have dozens of autobiographies written by former panthers and that's your first clue 
the fact that they had such an incredible newspaper. It's that newspaper that also gave them a global presence. So if you take that and then work backwards, it makes sense that some of their origins grew directly out of study groups. It was a way to rearticulate a sense of their own identity. It's the exposure to these reading groups, reading E. Franklin Frazier, Marcus Garvey, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale ultimately break with the Afro-American Association because they were deeply anti-capitalist and they felt that ultimately Donald Warden was a bourgeois nationalist. Well, yeah, he was suspicious of some of this uh, black study stuff, right? He wanted economic uplift and not uh, all that social science stuff. Absolutely. I mean, he was kind of a what I guess Robert Allen would call a pork chop nationalist, you know, a bourgeois nationalist. And as I said, the thing about Donald Warden, who becomes Khalid al-Mansur, is by the time you get to the late 60s, he is working directly with the Saudis and gets involved in all these oil politics. But it's, I think it's an important thing to think about that in the early 60s, it's almost like, you know, Vincent Harding's story of There is a River. All these different people are present and around the penumbra of the Afro-American Association. So you have Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. You also have Ronald Karenga, who goes on to found the US organization. And you have Ron Dellums, who becomes the first black congressman who's elected from the Bay Area Congressional District. He's older than they are by 10 or 15 years, but sometimes he comes to an event. They all knew him. The electoral politicians, the kind of black Marxist tendency of the Panther Party, and even cultural nationalists all date back to this study group in the early 60s. I'm speaking with the historian Donna Murch. You write about merit, but were there comparable things going on in other campuses around the country? That I don't know. I mean, to be honest, that story still has to be fully written. I think there's an elite bias in higher education history where people have focused on the most elite four-year institutions and PhD-granting institutions. There's some new work that's coming out about CUNY, but there's a lot still to be done. There are certain challenges in researching community colleges because they don't have the same kinds of archives and resources. Well, a lot of your work was interviews, right? A lot of my work was interviews. Because of the Panther Party, you know, it's an interesting question for historians. When people, when something is happening and people know that it's significant, a lot of the faculty and the librarians began saving things, saving their own newspapers, saving all different kinds of ephemera, saving flyers. And part of the way I was able to reconstruct the story was through this informal archive that a lot of the professors and uh, librarians had put together. Not all community colleges had that happen. You know, it's almost as if in the moment they knew it was important. And so they saved mementos. And I turn to another uh, a contemporary campus, a contemporary struggle. Um, you're deeply involved in the Rutgers Union. And, you know, there's certainly a lot of animus against higher education in uh, politics today. And of course, the pandemic has intensified that. Rutgers has an awful lot. It's a state university with an awful lot of first generation um, students. What political context? I mean, there's this, you know, big austerity program uh, the administration would like to launch there. What would you see a political angle to that? It's not just about saving money, but is there a political angle to it as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the lessons that I learned from writing my history of the Bay Area was that tuition hikes and fees aren't fiscal, that for the most part, they're political. There was a recognition in the 1960s and 1970s that this opening up of education at every level had led to left-wing radicalization. And that's what Huntington says. I mean, in the Trilateral Commission report in Political Order and Changing Societies, he says that the main thing that feeds the left is education. And so there is this retrenchment, and it is not simply a matter of fiscal austerity. Well, when CUNY imposed tuition, it was on the insistence of Felix Roten, who said it's not a fiscal matter, it's for the shock value. Really? He actually yeah. said that? He, yeah, he did say that. So it's, he, he said it explicitly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that history is very important for people to know because people increasingly take it for granted that higher education is this very limited resource that we can't get access to because it is so expensive and difficult to obtain. Because of my research in the party and just the understanding the, also the contradictions of the Cold War, that during the Cold War you have anti-communism, but you also have, because of the Cold War, all this funding, especially in California, of higher education. So I kind of take that into contemporary struggles to think about how important, number one, public universities are. I think that part is crucial. I think there's been a tendency, partially out of frustration and even self-critique, that 
people who in the university themselves don't always claim the university as a radical space. And Lord knows not everything that happens in the university is radical. Some of it quite to the contrary. Like the kind well, of an awful lot of professors are quite conventional, too. Exactly. Exactly. I was just thinking of all the bad real estate deals. I mean, there are a lot of reason for people to be angry. But, you know, I've taught at Rutgers my entire career. I've stayed at a public university. And I really do care about our university. And I see it as important, not only for the economic mobility of a largely immigrant first generation college attendees, but also as an incubator for a set of ideas, you know, a place that can provide a platform and an infrastructure for political organizing. So that said, we have a faculty union. It's faculty and graduate student union that has essentially three classes of workers. It has tenured and untenured faculty, tenure track. It has NTTs, which are non-tenure track lecturers. And then we have graduate students in the same unit. And our sister union are the part-time lecturers and adjuncts. This is relatively unusual in organized labor and higher education, where graduate students are in the same union as faculty. There are only a handful of schools that have this. But our union was founded in the early 70s, and it's a very, very strong union. I would argue it's probably the strongest faculty union in the country. We've been engaged in a series of battles with the administration that are influenced by the teacher strike starting in 2012 with the Chicago Teachers Union, using a model of essentially social justice unionism, bargaining for the common good. So thinking more broadly about claims, moving away from a long tradition of bread and butter unionism, and then focusing on these real questions of structural disparity. So last year, we won this incredible contract that essentially provided equalization by pay across all three campuses. On average, Camden faculty make $20,000 less than New Brunswick faculty. Camden, not coincidentally, is a very poor town. A very poor town. Yeah, exactly. Newark faculty, on average, make 10000 less. And we won a pay equity contract with the administration in which faculty at those campuses can apply for out-of-cycle wage increases in order to create equity across all three campuses. We won the same thing for race and gender equity. We won the requirement of the administration to provide non-tenured faculty with legal assistance for green cards. We won lactating spaces for nursing mothers. And we won a $5,000 increase in pay for the graduate students. What in the uh, the COVID fiscal emergency, what, what's happened to um, these gains and what's the university trying to do? The university is doing trying to do all kinds of dastardly things. They threatened to declare a fiscal emergency and we were able to hold that off for two months. They have declared it. We have a new president who doesn't want to go into arbitration, but we're going to take them into arbitration. They initially tried to fire all of the adjuncts, all. The union immediately confronted the administration, and within 24 hours, that had been rescinded, and they declared a cut from 20 to 25% of the adjuncts. Overall, 5% of Rutgers employees uh, have been given pink slips. Because of the strength of the union, so we have a faculty union, AAUP-AFT, but it has created a coalition of, it's called the Rutgers Coalition of Unions. It's 19 unions covering 20,000 workers. So we've created this coalition that includes everyone from academic workers to dining hall workers to engineers to mental health counselors, all included in this union. And through the pressure of the union, we have been able to get some of those layoffs rescinded. We had an amazing plan for a work share program starting in May that was going to use the CARES Act to have the coalition agree to staged furloughs. The faculty union played an important role in this. We would have agreed to staged furloughs that would use unemployment compensation and the $600 a week from the CARES Act to make people whole in order to prevent layoffs. The university dragged its feet and dragged its feet, and each week they dragged their feet. They lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So ultimately what's happened is that they've refused to participate in the work share program. It ended on July 24th, and instead they're pursuing the same strategy of layoffs. It's important to note, though, that we were able to prevent laying off of 900 people. And instead, a furlough system was used by the administration. Essentially, they took our strategy 
of using the CARES Act, but did not give the union a win. They tried to peel off each individual union through cutting deals with them. This brings up another issue. So we're in this time of fiscal austerity where Rutgers claimed that it was millions and millions of dollars in debt. We later found out through Oprah requests that this was not true. But what they did do is when they fired 20 to 25% of the adjuncts, they saved roughly $4 million. We found out through Oprah requests that they had hired Jackson and Lewis from 2018 until March 2020, and they spent $1.8 million on the most notorious union-busting law firm in the country. So that seems to be their strategy. They would like to get rid of you people. You're very troublesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing I really value about the union is that it has that element that's like movement building. We have a lot of political education. In some ways, COVID has had this effect because all of us are at home and all of us are bored and all of us are using Zoom, that it actually made it easier to do political organizing. And I think that that's a story that needs to be told more. People have the time to meet. It would be almost impossible to get 19 unions together in one room and to have a meeting. But because everyone was sheltering in place, it became possible. What's next? It's hard to keep track of all the terrible things that they've done. I was like just trying to think about what they've done in the last three days. We've just had firings of scores of mental health counselors. Imagine that. They're firing mental health counselors in the middle of a pandemic that service New Brunswick, Camden, and Newark. They've also fired nutrition educators, and we're basically waiting for them to send the pink slips to more people. The faculty union is going through the process because university is trying to not only take our raises, but cancel them that were inside the contract. So essentially cracking open the contract as a way to defeat the union and take the raises. So we're in this process now of getting forensic accounting and starting the process of arbitration. That was Donna Murch, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers and author of Living for the City from UNC Press. And that's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with a live version of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, performed by Nick Lowe on KGSR Radio Austin from sometime in the mid-90s. Lowe wrote it. Elvis Costello made it famous. Till next week, bye. As I walk this wicked world Searching for light in the darkness of insanity Oh yeah, I ask myself Is all hope gone? Is there only pain, hatred and misery? And each time I feel like this inside There's one thing I want to know What's so funny about peace, love and understanding